Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And if it's your first time hearing our show, it's based on a really simple idea that we've all had teachers in our lives who helped us become who we are today. And every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. We want you to be a part of this show with us, so please do tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the folks in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And as we wind down the year, we've already shared some of our favorite conversations of 2023. But Teacher's Lounge is even more than the interviews we have with educators you nominate. This show is also a platform for the in-depth education reporting I produce at WNIJ. Again, when we ask you for nominations, we also always ask you to send your story ideas to teacherslounge at niu.edu, and you do. You send in topics and stories, things happening in your school or maybe your child's school that you think people should know about. We've covered a lot of those story ideas here on the show. Honestly, this episode and our Best Conversations episode really do give me the best chance to look back at all of the work I did this year, and I'm really happy to report that it was really hard to narrow it down to eight or nine stories that stood out to me from this year, so I hope that means that we did some good journalism in 2023. I'm certainly proud of it. So today, we are going to revisit a few of those stories from Teacher's Lounge that stuck out to us this year. Some of them are very serious, some are uplifting or even fun, but I think they're all important. Let's get into it, and we will be back with a brand new Teacher's Lounge in 2024. First up, half of the kids who go to Lewis Lemon Elementary in Rockford could not take a bus to school. And especially in the cold winter months, many of those students don't make it to school at all. Here's our story from early in 2023 about a community member trying to help. I'm walking in the snow right now outside of Lewis Lemon Elementary School in Rockford. Not gonna lie to you, it's pretty cold outside right now. It, uh, with the windshield, it feels like negative four. And every day, there's kids at this school that live within a mile and a half that can't take the school buses and so they have to try to find a ride or I guess walk but as you can imagine it being negative four it's not something elementary school kids should be doing. 170 elementary schoolers at Lewis Lemon don't have a school bus. That's half of the whole school and you can see that in the school's attendance numbers. 84 percent of Lewis Lemon students were chronically absent last year meaning that they missed at least 18 days of school. For context, their chronic absentee rate is nearly triple the state average. In the winter, when temperatures can dip below zero in the morning, attendance gets worse. Lewis Lemon Principal Alicia Jones says not all parents have transportation, and the school sometimes gets calls from them saying it's too cold for their child to walk. John Brantley wants to make sure these kids have a ride. Some folks in the Rockford community know him as Brother John. And for the past two years, Brantley has used his own van to take Lewis Lemon students to and from school. Sometimes, if he can, he takes them to the library or other local events, too. And it started with just a few students. But this fall, Principal Alicia Jones asked him if he could start taking more. I got uh, 16 kids today. And is that about normal? Is it, you said uh, I get like an average between 20 and 25 kids every day. 
His group of 16 stands against the front of the school wearing colorful winter coats and hats. And John reminds them not to stand in the snow while they wait for everyone to get ready to leave. I got no more. We can walk towards the van. Hey, y'all, come on. The kids walk towards the van. Only, it's not John's van this time. Because a few weeks ago, his 2004 Honda Odyssey broke down. The timing belt snapped. It'll cost $1,600 to replace, and that's $1,600 he doesn't have. So, for now, he's been borrowing vehicles to keep getting kids to school and home after. The day I'm with John is the last day he can use a bus from the Rockford Housing Authority. Do you guys ride uh, every day in that special with Mr. John here? Yeah. Yeah. Several churches have also let him borrow their vans, although he has to pay for gas, and there are some days they can't let him use it. Some days I miss, like Monday. I couldn't get the housing authority or the church van. Only two of them made the school, and the other 25 didn't. So the school noticed a big difference. At this point, he has 30 kids on his list. So depending on the van, he has to make multiple trips. And many of those kids live in public housing. 70% of kids at Lewis Lemon Elementary qualify as low income. But why isn't the school taking them? Well, officials from the Rockford Public Schools Transportation Department say part of the reason is that they still have a shortage of bus drivers. They say, quote, with more drivers, we could potentially increase the district's ability to provide additional support to families who need it. Or why not help out Brantley financially? Well, John says he's hopeful the school district will help him get a grant to assist with the cost of his work. But RPS officials say the district doesn't write or offer grants. Brantley also spoke at a recent city council meeting asking for sponsors to help him repair his van. He may get a new one too, but it's been hard to let go of his old van. He says when his mom passed away, she left him some money to keep helping in the community, which he used on the van. But new van or not, one of the things he lives by is, as he puts it, ask not what your community can do for you, but what you can do for your community. Instead of complaining about what the school is not doing, the parents not getting their kids to school, I just say, hey, we're going to get these kids to school one way or the other. Fixing the van or getting a new one is his top priority, but someday he'd like to help even more Rockford kids get to and from school. Lewis Lemon certainly isn't the only RPS school that struggles with chronic absences, and he's already got a half dozen other schools on his radar if he can get the funds. This next story talks a lot about student mental health and even suicide. And if that's not something you want to hear about right now, you can skip forward about five minutes to the next story. Before the pandemic, 43% of schools provided students with computers like Chromebooks and tablets. Now it's well over 80%. And more than ever, school districts use software to monitor students when they're online. A student types the word suicide into a Google search on their school supplied Chromebook. It triggers an alert on the school's cloud access security broker. That's a software system the school uses to watch for potentially harmful online student activity, either harmful to themselves or to a fellow student. From there, the system's machine learning tools try to paint a more clear picture of the situation. Is the student just writing an essay for social studies about mental health laws? But maybe they've also spent time on suicide prevention websites. Ben Bale is the director of technology at Cal Public Schools. They use a security company called Securely, and he says with their software, at this point in the process, the information is also reviewed by actual people who work for Securely to see if intervention is necessary. From there, we can then trigger email responses that go to specific people, so it would go to like building administration. From there, it can also go to like the security manager for the district, SROs who are also trained in being able to assist, and then from there, if it's 
a truly substantive threat, phone calls start to occur. Mayo says that every week he receives about 100 securely alerts, and many of those are totally harmless. A student might be doing an assignment about gun control and do some firearm-related Google searches that trip an alarm. But, he says, in DeKalm, they get around three or four, quote, semi-substantive alerts every week. That means support gets immediately deployed to the student, like a meeting with a school social worker. This process, in some form or another, plays out every day in school districts across the country. According to one survey, 89% of teachers say their school monitors student activity on either school-issued or personal devices. They can see what students search for, who they chat with, even remotely watch their screen. Of the half-dozen Northern Illinois school districts that responded to WNIJ, all of them told us that they use monitoring companies like Securely, Gaggle, or GoGuardian. And school districts and security companies say the goal of online monitoring is student safety, to help identify and support students who might not reach out for help on their own, but whose online activity indicates they need assistance. Cody Vensky thinks that's a great goal, but isn't sure these programs fulfill it. He's a senior counsel for the Center for Democracy and Technology's Equity and Civic Technology Project. And a few months ago, he helped pen a report for CDT called Hidden Harms, the Misleading Promise of Monitoring Students Online. It has a disproportionate impact on groups of kids. We found that it's increasing contact with law enforcement, it's outing LGBTQ plus kids, and generally chilling what kids do online. Again, nearly 90% of teachers say their school uses this software, but where and when it's used can be surprising. For one, most monitoring is on school-issued devices, but 18% said their schools monitor students' own devices. If they're on the school's Wi-Fi or log into a web browser with their school credentials, the monitoring often continues. That means students are also monitored outside of the hours of the school day. It happens at night or if they keep their device on school breaks. In their surveys, a vast majority of parents and almost half of students say they're comfortable with device surveillance during the school day. Once it's following students home and being used to measure their mental health or their personal well-being, that cuts into a space of, of privacy that students and parents aren't comfortable with. When 24-7 alerts are first sent to third-party companies, IT professionals, and sometimes police before teachers or parents, it also surprises parents. In DeKalb, Security Director Ben Bale says its Securely system doesn't alert parents directly, but they promote a parent portal where parents can review their kids' web history, look at alerts, and block websites. Another concern the Center for Democracy and Technology study expressed is that monitoring can disproportionately impact marginalized students. First off, wealthy students are more likely to have their own devices, whereas low-income families might rely on school-issued devices. And even though discipline isn't the intended purpose of this software, it is a result. 70% of teachers said that monitoring is used to see if a student has violated a disciplinary policy. And in the CDT study, Black and Hispanic students were more likely to get in trouble as a result of online activity monitoring. LGBTQ plus language has also been found to be more often flagged by algorithms. And Zensky says he's worried that as schools use this software to get students to resources, those students won't actually seek support online if they know they're monitored. The internet allows us to connect to a lot of really great, important information, and kids are less likely to access it if they know that they're being surveilled. A staggering statistic in the Center for Democracy and Technology's report shows that 29% of LGBTQ plus students say they or someone they know have been outed due to online activity software. But despite concerns and gray areas, 
Ben Bale and DeKalb says the positives of proactively helping students before something bad might happen outweighs the negatives. I'd much rather be able to say that we're doing everything we can in order to support our students, um, even when they don't know maybe necessarily that they need the support. There are some, even on Capitol Hill, who also have concerns about student monitoring. In 2022, United States Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren released the findings from an investigation they opened into the top monitoring companies. The senator's report recommends these monitoring companies use demographic data to examine the impact of their algorithms on protected classes of students and for local education agencies to track the effects of these tools on marginalized students. This year, I've also written a lot about the early childhood system. And in early 2023, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker announced a massive series of state investments in early child care and education. And I got to report on the systemic challenges that make child care so difficult to access and the places where there are no services at all. There are deserts near the Mississippi River in northwest Illinois' Carroll County early childhood deserts, where any early child care service, whether daycare or preschool, are few and often very far between. The transportation can be an issue, especially out in the, in the rural areas. To send a preschooler on a bus for an hour and a half each way for a half-day program is a lot to ask. That's Luann Hayes. She's one of 39 regional council managers at Birth to Five Illinois. Hayes oversees Carroll, Joe Davies, and Stevenson counties. Birth to Five Illinois was created this past fall based on a recommendation from a state commission on early childhood's 2021 report. Each region has two advisory councils, an action council that includes local early child care providers and a family council with parents who are maneuvering the tangled web that is the early childhood system. And that's not just one education reporter's opinion. One of the commission's other recommendations was to streamline state and federal funding systems and agencies because it's so complicated for providers and obviously for new parents. And a lot of different services fall under the umbrella of early childhood. There's preschool, daycare, child care homes, home visits, and early intervention for students with extra needs. And there are public and private programs. Dawn V. Thomas summarizes it best. She works with ICAM, a state database of early child care programs. I'll say it's a hot mess. But before you can try to maneuver through those programs, there has to be some place for the child to go. So just how much of an early childhood desert is Carroll County? There's Little Sprouts, which is a, a great little daycare and preschool in Lanark. There's one in Chadwick, there's one in Savannah, then there's a Head Start. That's it. That's it for the entire county. There is one licensed child care center in all of Carroll County. For context, in DeKalb County, there are 17. That means even if you can find a preschool with enough space and teachers for your child that's high quality and fits your work schedule, you might have to drive an hour there and an hour home. But for so many parents, it feels almost impossible to find a spot for your child in a daycare or preschool. Lauren Dick is a mom with two young kids in rural Lena, Illinois. She's also a part of Birth to Five Illinois' family council in her region. There's wait lists for years for child care facilities. It's like you almost have to put yourself on a list before you're even pregnant. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker knows this. He's vowed to, quote, cover all of those early childhood deserts. Pritzker recently announced major investments in early childhood with his new Smart Start Illinois plan. It includes $250 million for early childhood programs this year, $100 million in facilities, and a $40 million funding increase for early intervention services. He also talked about how difficult it is for families to find an open spot in preschools. 
In the next school year alone, we will add an additional 5,000 preschool spots across Illinois. Lou Ann Hayes in Northwest Illinois says that's a big deal. They could use more of just about everything right now. We have 5,500 children in this three-county area who are five years old and younger. We have enough spaces for 1,500 of them, only 1,500, which means there's 4,000 kiddos right now hanging out somewhere. We're not sure, quite sure where they are. Smart Start also invests in ECACE, a scholarship program for early childhood workers to get a bachelor's degree because even if you have those spots and buildings ready to go, if there are no teachers, there are no programs. Hayes says they have classrooms right now, ready with children on the list, but with nobody to teach it. Dr. Melissa Klukas Walker is an assistant professor of human development and family sciences at Northern Illinois University. Students who want to work in early childhood outside of school settings go through her program, including folks getting the ECA scholarship. So NIU has a goal of reaching 160 students over this period. And since 2021, we've reached about 100. Mariah Saunders is a child care worker at Taylor's Tots in Rockford, and she's using the ECA scholarship to get a degree in developmental therapy from Rockford University. I didn't think I was going to ever go back because I don't have the money to do it at all. Klukas Walker says the scholarships are helpful, but the state has to make the job more enticing if they want the best and brightest signing up to work in early child care. In many cases, even getting a degree won't give early childhood workers much of a pay raise, and 50% of early childhood workers qualify for food stamps. She says people still don't quite grasp how crucial early childhood education is for kids and that 90% of brain development happens by age five. We know this from neuroscience, from brain development, that the better start we can give children, or the better the outcomes for children. For many in early childhood, it's refreshing to see the state begin to take it seriously. And in part two of that early childhood series, I reported on why it's so hard to access services, even for families who work in the system. Taylor's Tots is a home child care program Taylor Macklin has been running for 10 years in Rockford. She and her two staff care for a dozen kids all under four years old. The program blends a cozy at-home atmosphere with a more academic classroom setting that prepares kids for preschool and kindergarten. The walls are adorned with the kids' artwork. For many parents, it feels next to impossible to find a program like Taylor's Tots. There are childcare deserts that have no services, and then there are places like Rockford where there might be childcare programs, but getting into one is a whole other question, not to mention finding one that fits with your work schedule and transportation needs. Macklin's program, unsurprisingly, is in high demand. She closed her waitlist and doesn't expect any open spots until the fall of 2024. Many parents are desperate to get on those wait lists. The wait list for infant care is so extreme that I have had families contact me before they tell their spouse that they're pregnant. I have a family right now who, the second the mom found out she was pregnant, she told me to get on my wait list and then sent me a picture of the pizza announcement she gave to her husband a few days later. It's no wonder. If you don't have childcare, how are you supposed to go back to work and provide for your family and continue paying for that childcare? It can be a vicious cycle. Livia Bain is Birth to Five Illinois' regional council manager for Winnebago and Boone counties. She says a Rockford parent she works with had child care and was working, but it wasn't reliable care. When that falls through, this parent got demoted due to child care issues. Sarah Kulemeyer is the early childhood coordinator at the Regional Office of Education covering Carroll, Joe Davies, and Stevenson counties. She says situations like that 
or why the early childhood conversation has to be about much more than just adding more slots. Say you're a working family with a three-year-old child. You're finally able to secure a spot at a daycare, but it's only two and a half hours, not the full day. Sometimes families drive their kids to multiple daycares and preschools a day so they have somewhere they can go while their parents work. And if you work nights, weekends, or in the summer, might as well forget about it. We have maybe a thousand preschool slots. And we need probably 1,000 to 1,500 more to meet every child. But when I'm talking that it only meets the need for two and a half hours a day, does it truly meet the need? No, it really doesn't. To me, it perpetuates poverty and like a 1975 way of thinking that there's always going to be a stay-at-home parent. Kulemeyer sees parents struggling to meet their early childhood needs all the time. And it's especially evident on preschool screening days when she stands at the door greeting families at Empire Elementary School in Freeport. Families walk from across town in the middle of winter or pouring rain, pushing strollers, and she helps them fill out the paperwork and gets them bags of food to stuff into backpacks and strollers to take home. And they'll be like, I just want them with somebody else other than me because I think I'm a bad mom. I think I'm doing a terrible job. I wanted to hug that mom when she came to preschool screening because she felt like she was doing terrible things and she was so embarrassed. And I'm thinking what it must have taken for her to walk to school that day. But many families aren't able to make that trip to the screening. Kulemeyer says instead of expecting those parents to come to screenings, they need to go out to them. She's also a foster mom, and even her foster child couldn't go to preschool even with all of his risk factors and being considered homeless by the state, and she runs the program. And I know how to maneuver and check all those boxes. He still couldn't go. Teresa Fillers is a mom of two from the Rockford area. She's director of early childhood at Rockford Public Schools. That's to say she's also intimately familiar with the system and says it was still nearly impossible. Like so many families, she was driving an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon to get her kids from one provider to the next. Then she finally heard about a full-day program at a local church. They said, well, yes, we're accepting new, but not until this specific day in January. And if you're interested, um, we have families who line up outside in the morning on that day to try and get a spot for the year. So we went and got in line very early in the morning. They lined up with 15 other families like it was a midnight release for a new Xbox. Many advocates say that the governor's new $250 million Smart Start Early Childhood Plan will make a big difference for families, but it doesn't totally untangle the complicated web of providers and agencies that make it so hard for parents. Because right now, the system doesn't even work properly for the people within it, let alone the families and children who need the support the most. Next up, we did multiple stories this year about Illinois' relationship with the Native American community, especially since starting in the 2024-25 school year, all Illinois K-12 students will be required to learn about Native American history, tribal sovereignty, genocide, and much more. And I got to report on what it means for students, including Native American students here in Illinois. You want like the... Here in the basement of a Chicago church, Aaliyah Begay is teaching a group of about a dozen fellow Native American students some traditional dance techniques. This is a summer program from the American Indian Association of Illinois. Most of the students are in high school and they're all from Chicago. Some jump right in and dance, while a few others stand on the sideline before their friends' laughter and the music coaxes them in. 
Begay is going into her third year at Columbia College Chicago studying marketing. She's Navajo in Santo Domingo Pueblo, and she travels almost every weekend to dance at powwows across the country. And today, she's not just teaching dance and showing her jingle dresses, she's also talking with the students about her college experience. There's not that many of us, and there's a lot of stereotypes of not Native Americans not making it in life or being high school dropouts, and you guys want to break that. Begay is glad Illinois just passed the new Native American history bill, but she wants non-Native students to know that their story hasn't ended. We should be teaching everyone that we're still here and that we're not just like in the past. We're still out here and we're still thriving and everything. That is a key part of the legislation, which is still waiting for Governor Pritzker's signature. Students will learn about the history of indigenous people in Illinois, but also Native contributions to the arts, sciences, and more. And it'll describe the large urban Native American populations in Illinois. The state has no federally recognized tribal land, but over 70% of Native Americans nationwide live in urban areas, not reservations. And Chicago has one of the largest urban American Indian populations in the country, with around 175 tribes Presented. Older students will delve further into tribal sovereignty, the genocide and discrimination of Native Americans, and forced relocation. The instructional materials for those lessons will be developed in consultation with the Chicago American Indian Community Collaborative, a group of independent Native organizations that the American Indian Association of Illinois is a part of. Doreen Weesey is an enrolled member of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation in Minnesota and the president of the American Indian Association of Illinois. Weesey's been an educator in Illinois for over 50 years. Weesey and others met weekly with the state board's curriculum committee. It's still a work in progress, and she says they were able to borrow some from the curriculum in Wisconsin, but they largely started from scratch. She says Native American representation has been rare within Illinois education, and she says there are still very few Native American students attending college in Illinois. I still have kids dropping out of school. I can't talk the parents into borrowing a bunch of money to send their kids to college. Believe me, I'm working the summer on it to try to convince them, say it's worth it. Andrew Johnson is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the executive director of the Native American Chamber of Commerce of Illinois. He's also a part of the community collaborative, and he helped lead the legislative push for the history bill. He's been really proud of his work with the state board and Rockford State Representative Maurice West, who is the main sponsor of the bill. But his experience in Springfield wasn't totally positive. One of the representatives, I'm still troubled by it. He said, well, this education, you know, it's, it's going to include how Natives were involved in ritual sacrifice of children. I don't know. I was just floored. But there were some unforgettable, uplifting moments, too. Late last year, Native American drums and dancing could be heard in the Capitol Building Rotunda during the Native American Summit. And Johnson was there gathering support for issues like the Native American History Bill. It was overwhelming. I mean, there were tears. Um, it was... Uh... It was just so key. It was so important for our community to be there and to do that. And it definitely made our legislators know that there were uh, natives here uh, in that building and ones that were a vibrant community uh, that could contribute a tremendous amount uh, to the state. He said hearing those drums in the halls of power meant a lot to a group that's had so little representation since being forced off this land, a state that's named after a confederation of tribes. And they hope that this new curriculum will help students from every background understand Illinois' true history. 
And that story allowed me to really dive into history. In 2022, the U.S. Department of the Interior released an investigative report about the federal Indian boarding school policies that took Native children from their parents and communities in the 1800s. And this story is about the legacy of Native residential schools here in Illinois. I'm on the side of a busy road in suburban Cook County where an old gate pokes out of the trees. Here's the sign, St. Mary's Cemetery. Rusty sign, but it's still there and inside it looks really well maintained still. A rusted cross is on top of the sign and the little cemetery sits on the far corner of Maryville Academy's campus. It's a Catholic child care organization and residential school. And back in the 1880s, it was known as the St. Mary's Training School for Boys and it was one of two federal Indian boarding schools in Illinois. More than 50 Native American boys were sent to St. Mary's. Several of those children died at the school and according to a dissertation on the history of the school, are still buried in that small cemetery. Dave Back is a history professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and he's been studying federal Indian policy for over 30 years. There are no federally recognized tribal lands in Illinois, and Beck says the native kids at St. Mary's were from South and North Dakota, 900 miles from home. The children were taken from Spirit Lake Reservation community and the Standing Rock Reservation. So those were Dakota and Lakota Indian boys, and then apparently some Ojibwe boys from the Pembina band of Turtle Mountain. And unlike many boarding schools, St. Mary's also housed non-native orphans and dependents of Cook County. It wasn't created as a native boarding school, but Beck says the school had financial problems. They needed a source of funding. And at the same time, federal officials were pushing this policy of cultural genocide to take Indian children away from their families and put them into boarding schools where they would be forced to learn English. The hope was that they would forget their tribal heritage. In exchange for educating those children, the school got federal money. The indigenous youth were trained to be farmers at the school, although officials said they were supposed to learn other trades too. I said, hello, my relatives. I'm from Spirit Lake, North Dakota, or Spirit Lake, Dakota Nation. I'm also Meskwaki, Hidatsa, and Anishinaabe. My name is Deidre Whiteman, and I'm the Director of Research and Education for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. That was Whiteman speaking in the Dakota language. The Healing Coalition is pushing Congress to pass the Truth and Healing Commission on the Indian Boarding School Policies Act. It was reintroduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren in June. Whiteman, who grew up in the Quad City, says a commission could help answer basic questions like how many kids were forced to attend these schools. Researchers know it's in the hundreds of thousands, but what were their names? Papers at the time mentioned some of the St. Mary's kids' names with new English names listed alongside them. Whiteman says it's hard to know if those names are totally accurate or not. Also, a commission like the one created by the Canadian government could investigate how many children were abused or died at the school and what the long-term impacts on the families have been. Another part of her work is research. The DOI has released 408 boarding schools uh, that were federally funded. Us at NABS, we found 521 schools 
That could mean more schools in Illinois that weren't federally funded. She says several former residential schools have reached out to them about acknowledging their history and establishing a relationship with tribal communities. Some tribes have also worked on repatriation to return home children's remains buried at residential schools. The other residential school in Illinois was the Homewood Boarding School in Peoria County, which is now a state park. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources operates the site, and in May 2022, after the Department of the Interior's report, then-director Colleen Callahan said they'd be reviewing how they tell the history of that site in the coming days and months. A spokesperson for IDNR told WNIJ that they had nothing to report yet. The now Maryville Academy doesn't mention the school's time as a boarding school on its Our History section of its website. Maryville's executive director, Sister Catherine Ryan, says they're working on, quote, how we will recognize this part of the history, but declined an interview with WNIJ. This next story was about a northern Illinois college grad and his love of agriculture. You know, when you think of agriculture, you probably think of farmers driving tractors or throwing bales of hay. And many might not think ag is a field that is accessible for people with physical disabilities. And this is a story of an Illinois college student ready to change that perception. I'm Cesar Delgado from Ottawa, Illinois. I am a college student of Illinois Valley Community College. Caesar's just about to graduate from IVCC in a few weeks. Commencement is May 13th with a degree in agricultural studies. His voice, as you might have noticed, is computer generated. Caesar has cerebral palsy, he's nonverbal and uses a wheelchair, but he can speak thanks to a digital communication device where he controls a keyboard with his eyes. And finding that voice has let Caesar fully pursue his passion for agriculture and specifically his goal to become a professional agricultural communicator. And he's already started doing that while he's in school with his podcast, Backroads of Illinois. On the show, he interviews farmers and other ag professionals from across the country. They chat about their lives, economics, and the markets. Good afternoon. I am Caesar Delgado from Backroads of Illinois. What is your opinion on the farm bill on Illinois farmers? His show touches on legislation, prices, politics, inflation, every area of the industry. And Caesar is a member of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters. He recently won an award for prepared speaking, and he wants to continue his show after he gets his diploma. I will be dedicated server for the farmers with my podcast. Caesar's family has deep roots in farming. His great-great-grandfather was a Farm Bureau president in Mexico. His mom, Lourdes, says she would tell Caesar stories about him as a little kid. And even when he was really young, she remembers looking for a battery-operated toy car for him. Caesar couldn't drive it, so she needed to find one with two seats, and there was only one option. And Caesar says it only fueled his interest more. I was little boy. I had John Deere tractor, so I knew it. His sister would drive him around in that toy tractor. And as he got older, he joined his high school's Future Farmers of America group and served as a farm manager for the organization. He got to go to livestock, grain, and dairy judgings. And it was in high school that he met Tina Hardy, the coordinator of the Center for Accessibility and Neurodiversity at Illinois Valley Community College. She worked with Caesars High School to help him smoothly transition into college. It's amazing. Um, you know, the thing that strikes me is the passion for egg was there the moment I met him. That has not changed at all. And Illinois Valley was a good fit. The college has a growing agriculture program. They have a campus farm, a new ag center, and are building ag classrooms and labs. And to this day, Hardy still works with Caesar, setting up any accommodations he needs with instructors. But she told him up front, 
there weren't going to be any shortcuts, no free passes. We're going to push you and we're going to make you the best communicator you can because I felt that was a lot of my focus. Same requirements, same standards. And he worked hard. He never flinched. And she says she doesn't really know if the faculty and administrators at IVCC really grasp the connection Caesars made through his show with ag leaders locally and nationally. And outside of class in the podcast, he explores even more areas of the ag industry. For example, he works for a company selling micronutrients. The company is out of Oklahoma. So we sell the micro to the farmers and ranchers in the country. Caesar's also got a backyard farm at his house in Ottawa where he grows crops like corn, cucumbers, and tomatoes for his family. I like to have the challenge of the row crop like soybean and corn. Some might not immediately think of agriculture as a field accessible to people with physical disabilities like Caesar, but that has not and will not stop him from pursuing his love of ag. Honestly, I just don't give up and let's do it like logo of Nike. And the back roads of Illinois have led Caesar all the way to the graduation stage. Up next, what happens when students miss a lot of school without a valid excuse? Some students find themselves tangled up in truancy or educational neglect court. Here's more on what that can mean for families. A few years ago, Darwin says it was hard to picture a future for themselves. It's an upsetting thought for anyone, let alone someone just barely starting high school. I'm just gonna, I guess, work and work until, like, you know, I have nothing left. It was a really hard time. Their grandmother was very sick, their mother was struggling with mental health issues, and then the pandemic hit. And Darwin was pretty much on their own for nearly a year without a parent providing food for them. And they had missed a few hundred days of school dating back to middle school. In the beginning, the reason why I myself chose not to go to school was because of a certain family member that would scare me. They would go to school regularly for a month or so, then things at home would take a turn again. At some point, they missed so much school and were so behind on assignments, it just felt like there was no chance they'd catch up. So what's the point? The school offered tutoring, but they had no ride to get there. Darwin's case started off in family court, but was eventually transferred to truancy court. Megan Hawkinson is the director of at-risk student services at the Regional Office of Education covering Boone and Winnebago counties. And she has a team of attendance interventionists, and they also refer students to the state's attorney's office for educational neglect and truancy cases like Darwin's. Truancy is a symptom. Maybe 1% of the cases are kids that just don't care, like don't want to go to school. There's almost always some sort of underlying issue. Truancy typically involves older students, while educational neglect focuses on a parent or guardian not providing education to their younger child. It's her team's job to peel back the layers and to find those underlying issues. Like an onion, you might peel back one problem and discover another. A housing issue might have an addiction or a domestic violence issue hidden underneath. Across two counties, Hawkinson has 800 kids on her caseload, but less than 10% end up in court. Most get resolved quickly, but she sits in court every other week, answering education questions from the judge and giving a report on what the child's attendance has been like since the last time they were there. Not every county refers students to court this way, but Hawkinson says Winnebago tries to be proactive in getting them back in the classroom. 
Every student in a truancy case is appointed a guardian ad litem. They're an attorney who is supposed to act in the best interest of the minor as opposed to a lawyer simply representing a client. Stephen Whitmore is a guardian ad litem for the Winnebago County Juvenile Courts. I have the entire educational and truancy call, and then I also have other abuse and neglect cases that also happen to occur in my courtroom. Sometimes the two cases bleed together. He currently has 300 cases, 200 in abuse and neglect, and 100 in truancy. Whitmore says Winnebago County has the second highest volume to Cook County. By the time a youth makes it into his courtroom, they've already had at least three attempts at a meeting, as well as a home visit by the truancy interventionist. Whitmore does home visits too, and he says he deals with a lot of school-based anxiety, especially with the pandemic. And the judge is often able to order counseling or for the parent to request an individualized education plan evaluation for their child. I wish there was more access to counseling for kids who are struggling. We run out of counselors very quickly. In a vast majority of cases, the child stays with their parent. That wasn't the case with Darwin. The judge was able to put Darwin into the care of their older cousin who adopted them this year. It took over a year, but Darwin was able to move in permanently and switch school districts. It was a big challenge, but they had more support this time. And now they're going into their senior year of high school, and after a lot of summer school and credit recovery, are on track to graduate on time. You will cry, you will get pissed, and you will have all these emotions like coming at you and you will have no idea what to do. Well, really, it's a lot easier than the things you just have to believe. The truancy court process worked out for Darwin, but it's stressful. Some cases take years. And although they had some helpful social workers and truancy officers, their adoptive mom says many people at their old school didn't take the time to really understand why Darwin was missing so much school. And if people there had taken more of an interest in finding out that Darwin's basic needs weren't being met, they might have gotten back on the path to success even sooner than they did. Our penultimate story of the day is a recent one. In late 2021, a coalition of some of the country's top pediatricians declared the youth mental health crisis a national emergency. And I heard from families and care providers about how challenging it is for children to access the mental health support they need. And again, as a warning to listeners, this story talks about suicide. So if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, you can call or text 988 for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Na is 14 years old. She loves science and is a talented artist. She's creative and loves gaming. Over the past few years, she's also had a number of severe mental health challenges. She's been hospitalized and ultimately landed in an inpatient facility in another state, hundreds of miles from her home. Her mom, Brittany Cotton of Rockford, says that every step of the way, youth mental health services have been inconsistent, inadequate, or unavailable. This whole situation, with services being so difficult, the overall feeling is isolation. That is the hardest part of all of it, is feeling like you are the only one facing this alone. For many kids like Na, the first person to notice something is wrong is a teacher. Since the pandemic, the vast majority of public schools say they've seen an increase in students seeking mental health support. And schools have tried to step up in many ways. In Illinois, the state launched a hotline called Safe to Help that allows students to raise red flags about themselves or friends they're worried about. Students can take mental health days off from school, and many have used pandemic relief funding and secured federal grants to hire more counselors, social workers and school psychologists. Genevieve Maltby is a school social worker at the Harlem School District in McChesney Park, and she says they've seen an increase in student need, but not 
an increase in staff to meet that need. So social workers like Maltby are forced to react to student incidents instead of proactively helping them before a major problem develops. It's a bit like triage in war. Because really, at the high school level, I don't have time to sit with a student for a lengthy amount of time. So it's really just about like getting in quick fixes. And that's not effective at all. Even with so many short-staffed, school-based support can be genuinely helpful. According to her mom, it was for Na. Schools would sit down and try to talk to her, try to work through things. Often, they work that way. They had to get me involved. But they would take more time to check in on her than any of the services we were involved in. Back at Harlem, Maltby says one misconception that people have is that school social workers commonly provide one-on-one behavioral therapy to students. At Harlem, they don't, but they do partner with community organizations and agencies so they can refer students out for therapy. Sometimes therapists from those agencies even come in and provide treatment at the school. But as Maltby says, Not as many as I think we should. I think that's an area that we could definitely provide more services for. But that being said, when we do offer that, it fills up quickly and then we're short-staffed again because they don't have the people either. That's another crucial point. Even if kids are referred out for therapy, it might be a while before they actually see a therapist due to long wait lists. And if that child is in a mental health emergency and threatening their own life, advocates say that waiting can be very dangerous. Marshmallows Hope is a nonprofit in Rockford that provides youth mental health counseling and mentorship. Laura Kane is the founder and executive director, and she created Marshmallows Hope after her son Zachary died by suicide in 2018. The reason why Marshmallows Hope exists is because of the lack of services and the wait lists that other entities in the community were struggling with. Three years ago, the organization started as a mentorship program for kids struggling with mental health. But then a child they were mentoring attempted suicide, and they couldn't get them into therapy for months. We had a second child who attempted, and then they couldn't get him into services until June. So six months of a wait list, right? That child reattempted again. But at that point, I petitioned Winnebago County, and I was like, we need to do something. I need to hire a therapist. And Kane says those situations weren't outliers. It was six months wait on average to get them into therapy. And that's deadly. Those wait lists still exist, but groups in the Rockford area like Marshmallows Hope and the National Youth Advocate Program can provide immediate, short-term counseling while kids in crisis wait for long-term therapeutic options. Brittany Cotton says she wishes Marshmallows Hope had existed in early 2020 when Na needed help the most. At that point, they were caught up on wait lists, and then once they finally got a good therapist, staff turnover and inconsistent sessions made progress more difficult, especially as the pandemic was unfolding folding and COVID interrupted services. Kane says that the number of kids requiring mental health services has skyrocketed with the pandemic. They currently have nearly 170 children receiving services and 90% of those kids have attempted suicide. And she says that while the need has increased, the number of community support services has not. There have been a few improvements, but overall, Kane sees the Northern Illinois community in worse shape now than before the pandemic, especially when it comes to inpatient services. That's the number one need. We have nowhere for kids in our local community to go to an inpatient hospital stay if they're in high crisis like that.
Mercy Health closed their inpatient mental health unit at Javon Bay Hospital in Rockford. Medicaid doesn't often cover inpatient youth mental health services unless the child has a co-occurring substance use disorder. Rosecrans is a behavioral health treatment center in Rockford, and they used to have funding to help provide youth inpatient care without substance use. Sadie Cobio is the assistant administrator of community behavioral health services at Rosecrans, and she says a change in the center's funding source has made that more complicated. So our residential services are specific to primary substance use, which honestly goes back to like the funding source. So Rosecrans is happy to provide the service for either. Um, from a funding perspective, they really have to be primary substance use. Kane at Marshmallows Hope says there also just aren't enough beds at hospitals like Swedish American either. So when a child is in crisis and needs to be hospitalized, even when they have a plan and the means, sometimes there's nowhere to send them. Amber Shepard is the engagement specialist with the Rockford Mobile Crisis Response Team, part of the National Youth Advocate Program. And she agrees with that. We don't have it really anywhere to send them to because resources are, are so limited. Brittany Cotton says her daughter Na has been turned away because of a lack of beds, and it nearly happened again this year when she needed to be hospitalized because of her mental health. It's a terrifying time to try to get help and more and more children. We've been told that beds were completely full in like four different hospitals when Swedish American would check. They were always full, always full. Um, so we got lucky this year. We got lucky um, to get her in because every other year they were completely full. Her daughter was in the hospital for about two weeks. And after she was released, Cotton knew that she needed the full-time support of a residential center. And without inpatient services available locally, Cotton, like so many, was forced to explore sending her daughter to an out-of-state facility. But to do that, she not only needed to figure out which one she could pay for and which was the best equipped to handle her daughter and was in a place that she felt somewhat comfortable with, they also had to deal with even more wait lists. Once again, it took months. And trying to work out which facility might work for your child's needs, it's really hard. In general, Cotton says maneuvering between services and making sure everyone knows the medications her daughter's on and what the diagnoses are, it's a huge burden on parents and caregivers. And she says making sure agencies, insurance companies, and hospitals have the right documents can feel like a full-time job in and of itself. And it's on top of the stress and worry about her daughter's well-being. As a parent, you will have to do paperwork as if you're going to be facing a criminal case. I swear you do. And after months of waiting and after time in the hospital, she finally got Na into a residential center a few months ago. It's in Missouri hours away from her family and her friends. We get a 10-minute conversation at night, nightly, if I'm lucky. And it hasn't been a great experience, but it is round-the-clock support. And Cotton says they've been told now I'll be home in six months, but she's not sure. And when she does get back, she knows her daughter will still need support. She's still just a teenager. And while she's grateful for the community organization she's found during this journey, she thinks more people should know about what services are available. And Cotton says there needs to be a lot more investment in youth mental health resources for both kids and their families. Because whether that investment comes or not, the youth mental health crisis isn't ending anytime soon. And finally, it's time for our final story of the day and of the year for that matter. And I thought we could end it on a light and maybe even savory note. 
In towns across Illinois, Friday nights in the fall center on two things, high school football and food. And I visited a small town on the Illinois River with a concession stand culinary tradition that won them a major prize in 2022. Dozens of pork chops sizzle on the grill. Eight men stand in the smoke with sunglasses, steel tongs, and matching aprons. On the apron, a pork chop is stabbed at the end of a devil's pitchfork. That's because we're outside of Hall High School in Spring Valley, home of the Red Devils football team. And home of the best concession stand pork chop sandwich in Illinois. They've even got the golden spatula to prove it. Well, I don't know what the secret is. Maybe the fans, maybe uh, the way we do it, the camaraderie, camaraderie. That's Luke Simpson. His brothers Josh and Dan are grilling tonight too, but everyone grew up together. The whole group went to Hall, and they'll be the first to tell you, once the smoke's in your eyes and the chops are flying, everyone's family. Last year, they won the 2022 Pork and Pigskins Contest. It's a competition from the Illinois High School Association and the Illinois Pork Producers Association. Last year was the second year they held the Savory Tournament with over 100 high school concession teams competing. Fans vote during the initial rounds, but then the IHSA deploys judges to football games across the state to pick a winner. Tracy Henry is the assistant executive director of the Illinois High School Association. I can say it scored super well when it came to um, flavor, seasoning, and then just the tenderness of the meat. And then there were a few additional comments just about the camaraderie and the, the huge grill that they had, a welcoming atmosphere when you went to the games. Most of them have grilled chops here for a few years now, but it's a tradition that goes back generations in Spring Valley, at least 30 years. And you can even find plaques with the names of the original crew. Speaking of our crew, how about we meet our other grillers tonight? Josh Simpson, Spring Valley, Illinois, Local so 11, Area all... 297, rocking and rolling right through life. <laughs> That's right. Scott. Lee Simmons, I was the second recruit. Cooking pork chops and having a good time watching football right on the side of the field. How could you go wrong? I'm Dustin Davis. I'm Dan Simpson. I'm Jeff Gamuski. This is actually my first official night here. This is day how, yeah. how are you feeling? I feel great. I feel like giving back to the community and just really just kind of hanging out with my friends. And tonight is a big night for the Spring Valley community. It's time to defend their pork chop championship and it's the home opener for the varsity football team. The Red Devils face off against the Riverdale Rams. On the, return. the game is underway and the home team is already in command on the field and the grill is smoking with Josh putting some finishing touches on the pork chops. Yeah, like a little char, you know, right there. Then you kind of know it's done. They're cooking around 500 chops tonight. You can even ask the folks wrapping sandwiches and handing them out to customers. It's all about getting them out quick, exactly. They're going as fast as we're wrapping them, no joke. And nothing goes to waste. They always feed both teams after the game. So what's the secret to the best pork shop in the state? Well, let's ask Luke again. Where we source the pork from and, and our seasoning is a big part of it too. That's here locally in Spring Valley. Like, you know, I think that's what really kind of makes us separate. Is it the secret spice mix? Is the secret sauce literally their secret sauce? Well, Dan says there's something special about how the flavors come together once the pork is grilled, marinated, and wrapped. How about we ask the fans? Seasoning's yeah, great. It's just kind of a tradition for me. Many I talk to know at least one person behind the grill, and it wouldn't be a Friday night of football and family without buying a pork chop sandwich. The guy's cooking it. They know how to prepare it. Back at the grill, Luke thinks she might be onto something. Yeah, we've known each other since yeah, since grade school. We all much grew up together. Yeah, all of us, and even the old timers. Yeah, he was like the bus driver. 
The Red Devils cruise to victory and the Grillers retire behind the end zone. Hundreds of chops all in a night's work and the proceeds go to the sports boosters. So what's the secret? Well, it's not just the sauce or the flavor of the chops. It's the bond of the guys behind the grill. It's spending time with friends and family and the tradition of coming out every week to feed fans and support their small community nestled in the Illinois Valley. That's all we've got for you. Thank you again for listening to another year of Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get all of our great guests and stories. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. Again, please do continue to send your story ideas so we can keep bringing you the best education coverage possible in 2024. And wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating or share. Subscribe to our Teacher's Lounge newsletter over at wnij.org. I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we will be back with a brand new episode of Teacher's Lounge in the new year. We'll see you soon.